Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History. Today we're tackling one of the big beasts of historical arguments, a kind of subject that frankly is likely to get us cancelled. We're going to be talking about empire. What is empire? What's it for? Where's it come from? And can it ever be a good thing? Or is it always morally wrong? Tom Holland, I've been uh, dreaming since we started of getting you cancelled and this is my chance. Um, well, so let's start by saying what we are going to talk that's about. That's a very empires. Yeah, of course. <laughs> we're talking about empires very broadly, aren't we? We're not going to be talking about a specific empire. We're going to span the whole of history and the idea... Well, I mean, let's get down to it. What is an empire, would you say? Well, um, let's, let's go to the etymology. Let's say, you know, where, where does the word empire come from? Uh, it comes from a Latin word, imperium. And the meaning of imperium over the course of the Roman Empire changes in a quite interesting way. So imperium is, um, it's a command, but it's also the right that someone has to issue a command. So an imperator... It's like authority almost. Yeah, so an imperator, conventionally translated as a general, is someone who has authority, who has power over the men who are subject to him. Um, Imperator becomes the title that Augustus, the first Roman emperor, gets, and, and our word emperor comes from imperator. But, and so it implies that he has imperium over a vast sway of, of, of the empire and of the people within it. And it's during um, Augustus's life that a great map of the empire goes up in the forum. And that starts to um, that that's a kind of a, a symbol for the way in which the understanding of imperium changes to actually mean the physical territory that the Romans have power over, and I think and I think that that sense of um, a, a physical amount of territory, uh, you know, in the Roman classically, it's it's kind of subcontinental. It's a vast, vast array of territory combined with authority that one person or perhaps, you know, a particular people have authority and power over other peoples. Um, so I think that the, the perhaps the two key elements of empire are that you have a, a centre, you have a dominant yeah. centre, and you have peripheral, yeah, you, yeah. Have a, you have a metropole, and then you have peripheral regions. And also you have an idea that, that, that one, you know, that this, this, um, this metropolis, this metropole, this centre has authority and power over the peripheral regions. So I would guess that would be how I would describe empires. But, but Tom, could you not go, I mean, I don't want to play the whole fixture on away turf as it were. We should come further forward at some point, but um, couldn't you go further back and say that the very first civilizations that we know of, let's say, you know, 5,000 years ago or whatever, um, the the two kingdoms of Egypt, the Indus Valley, um, sort of uh, Mesopotamia, Akkad, and all these kind of places, that that society itself originated often as empires. I mean, it obviously, didn't originate as nation states. Well, that uh, yeah, so sophisticated powers had elites that that governed places with lots of different people who often spoke different dialects or languages, or maybe worshipped different gods. And that they had a single authority. I mean, obviously, Persia is the is the famous example of that, isn't it? Which you've written about. Well, there's this fantastic phrase in periogenesis, the process by which empires come to be formed. And you talked about Egypt and you talked about Mesopotamia. Um, in Egypt, the figure of the pharaoh, he's a figure within, in the Roman sense, imperium. He has power, but he also has comes to have authority over the entire 
um, Nile Valley that comes to constitute the Kingdom of Egypt. And um, everyone who lives along the Nile, they speak the same language, they essentially worship the same gods, they acknowledge the same ruler. Um, and so in a, I, I guess that um, ancient Egypt approximates perhaps more closely to our sense of a nation state. In Mesopotamia, you have different cities and each city has to, to build walls, essentially because to, to keep the wealth within and to keep outsiders outside. And Mesopotamia on top of that has to deal with the fact that beyond the floodplains of, um, of the Tigris and the Euphrates, you have predatory powers lurking in the mountains, perhaps lurking in the deserts who would, you know, if they had the chance, would come and grab a bit of this. So you cannot survive as a city-state in Mesopotamia unless you have a degree of militarism. And this militarism in turn inevitably <laughs> fosters an ambition. Famously, the first person to do it supposedly is this guy Sargon of the city of Akkad, who conquers, starts to conquer other cities. And so it's the tradition of imperialism in the, the Middle East, really, I think, that is the kind of the great granddaddy of what today we would think of as empires. Because... Um, what begins with Akkad goes on to you, you, you get um, Assyria, you get Babylon. Um, Assyria is a famously brutal and predatory empire. Um, and essentially its rule is founded on military oppression and on terror. So when the Assyrians conquer a rival people, they will deport them. Famously, they do this to the, the, the 10 tribes of Israel. And um, in time, over the course of the Assyrian Empire, people who are deported to Assyria come to be called booty. So they are, you know, part of the loot that the Assyrians are carrying off. Those who resist are, are, are kind of ritually and humiliatingly killed. People are, you know, leaders are transported back, put in cages with wild animals outside the cities of, of Assyria so that people can watch them. Um, other people, you know, the kings are, are have their heads cut off. The royal families will have their heads cut off. Courtiers will be brought back to Nineveh, made to parade through the streets with the heads round their, <laughs> round their necks. So these are spe spectacles of, of dread and terror. Um, Assyria ends up basically being wiped from the face of the earth. Nineveh gets trampled down. And the reason for that is that terror and dread in the long run is insufficient to keep an empire. And the great empire that emerges, um, which you know, expands far beyond Mesopotamia to rule Egypt and all the way to the Indus is, as you said, the Persian Empire. And the great thing that the Persians innovate is that they identify their empire with moral virtue. Their empire is a force for truth, is a force for light, is a force for goodness. And by defining their empire in that sense, it immediately means that those who oppose them are on the side of darkness and the lie. But um, so, Tom, you, I mean, you obviously emphasise violence. And I guess uh, a lot of, you know, 21st century scholars and people who sort of think about empire, think of empires in terms of violence and power and all this sort of oppression, I suppose. Um, but there is obviously another way to think about this, which is that, let's say Persia, you give the example of Persia. And I know you've written about this in your book, Persian Fire. So the Persians have, you know, this n amazing network of roads They've got weights and measures. They've got a currency. They've got a sense of, you know, they view their own world as this kind of walled garden, don't they? And, and beyond is kind of barbarism and, and savagery and within it all is order. And you, presumably you could make an argument that if you're a sort of, you know, Joe Bloggs from media or from, um, you know, Mesopotamia or, 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 or what's now Iran, you might think, well, you know, life isn't actually so bad in the heart of this empire. We've got all this infrastructure. We've got all this stuff. Of course, there is always the the, the ubiquitous threat that I might get my head cut off or, or whatever. But I'd rather that than live in an anarchic world of clan, of sort of savage clans fighting each other all the time and, and, and invaders coming and going and a sort of sort of Hobbesian struggle for existence. I mean, that's the, the, the justification for empire through history, isn't it? That it equates to order. Well, um, I suppose that um, the Near East has basically always been ruled by empires, pretty much from, you know, from, from the time of Sargon of Akkad. Um, and the, 
the earliest experience of empire, by and large, is is, is terrible. Um, and the famous, you know, I mean, seismically influential articulation of this is is what we call the Old Testament, because the Israelites and then the the the, the people of Judah, the Southern Kingdom, are you know they're tiny, they're small, they're minnows, and so they're always being trampled down by the big powers, by the Egyptians, by the Babylonians, by the Assyrians. Um, and pharaohs and kings of Assyria in the Old Testament are, are, are sinister figures. Um, there is one exception that proves, and this exception is Cyrus, who is hailed by Isaiah as the Messiah, as the anointed one, God's agent, because... That's Cyrus the Great of Persia. Cyrus the Great. What Cyrus does is to say to the deported peoples who've been carried to Mesopotamia, you can go back home. And among those are the people who will become the Jews who go back. You know, they've been weeping by the rivers of Babylon. They go back to Jerusalem and they refound it. And so the Persians in, in the biblical tradition are remembered as, as good guys. And absolutely, they, you know, for, for, for the people who become the Jews, the Persians are remembered very, very fondly because um, basically they, you know, they provide peace, they provide order, they allow them, they allow the people to, the people of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Um, but isn't that how a lot of people living in the Persian Empire would have thought of Persia? So, for example, the classic thing, we talked in previous podcasts about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great invades Persia and he says he's coming as a liberator and a hero. And his story in the West is always told of this intrepid adventurer who goes into this sort of evil empire and cuts a swathe through it. But presumably if you're, you know, Joe Bloggs living in Persia and this Macedonian turns up with his army and says, I'm going to tear down your empire, I'm coming as a liberator... I mean, it's a nightmare, isn't it? This, uh, these people kind of who don't speak your language kind of charging through your country, smashing everything up. Uh, presumably a lot of people quite like living in the Persian Empire. Uh, yes. Um, and the, the roots of, of Greek rule are much more shallow. Although having said that, um, part of the reason why um, the Eastern Mediterranean ends up Greek speaking through vast swathes across vast swathes beyond Greece is that... Um, what the Greeks bring to the imperial tradition is the kind of the glamour and sophistication of their culture. So that's another way in which um, imperial powers can kind of really cement their rule is if the culture that they bring is sufficiently um, kind of appealing that I, I guess initially elites and then perhaps it kind of percolates down um, through the various classes that they come to identify with it. Um, and, and that's essentially how and why Greek ends up being spoken across the Eastern Mediterranean. And it's the same kind of process that ultimately happens with Rome, that although Rome is an unspeakably uh, brutally militaristic power, I mean, it's, it's militaristic in a way that kind of rivals the Assyrians, really. Um, ultimately, the reason that the Roman Empire coheres for as long as it does is because it is able to sell the idea of Romanitas, of being Roman, to the degree that, uh, at the beginning of the third century, um, all male adults across the empire are given citizenship. And even when the Roman Empire in the West falls, people in the eastern half, what we call Byzantium, are still identifying themselves as Romans. And when the Ottomans turn up in 1453, the people who are defending Constantinople think of themselves as Romans, even though originally the people in the East had been conquered very, very brutally by Roman armies. And really, the, the, the surest way that an empire can survive and put down roots is to get the conquered people to feel that the conquest has been for their own good. No, but doesn't that then raise the question of the alternatives to empire? So if you're not living in an empire for most of human history, what are you living in? Well, in a sense, for most of, of Eurasian history, you have the, the great land empires. Um, for most of Eurasian history, if you don't live in an empire, you're a barbarian. You're on the fringes. So you're on, the, you know, you're on beyond China, beyond Rome, beyond Persia, um, beyond the, the, the great empires of northern India. So you're a nomad. You're, 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 you're a nomad. Just, yes. Yeah. And there's a sense in which empires come to define themselves against these nomads against these barbarians um and 
that beds down the assumption that to live in a great empire is the kind of normal condition for humans. Now, in a sense, Europe is unusual in that after the Roman Empire implodes, it doesn't reconstitute itself. We did, we did a, you know, the episode on China where uh, we were talking about, you know, is China one continuous empire? Is it a sequence of, I mean, it's a sequence of empires. And really it's, it's, it's both. But that idea of a Chinese empire as being the natural state of things is something that, you know, not just the people who live within the Chinese empire, but, but the barbarian invaders as well really hold to. Whereas in Europe, that doesn't happen, particularly in the Western half of, of what had been the Roman empire. And that kind of splinters. And that I think is a kind of crucial influence on the way that, that we today in the West view empire. Because although we might be tempted to, you know, I think, I think that there is a kind of sense, uh, very widespread, that assumes that empire is basically synonymous with European colonialism. But actually, that's not, not the case at all. What's distinctive about Europe is precisely that empire has been a kind of very fleeting experience. And that within the continent of Western Europe, you know, within Western Europe itself, every attempt to reconstitute the Roman Empire has basically failed. Well, I agree with that, Tom. And I wonder whether... Um, I, you see, what always strikes me when we talk about empires is this sense that um, the nation state is the norm. That's the assumption now. That's what all 21st century sort of... Uh, all the discussion on social media or when people talk about it, they sort of say, why can't you leave people to govern their own affairs? Why can't they? But obviously, for most of human history, that was not an option. The nation state was not on the table as a as an alternative. And right. most people yeah. would not have recognised it that way. Right. And so, so you talk about the Roman Empire. When the Roman Empire fell, um, people didn't think to themselves, oh, brilliant, we can have Spain now. We can live yeah. in, you know, we, we can live in Belgium. What they actually thought was that the fabric of order, the infrastructure on which we depended for trade, for exchange, for kind of promotion, for status, you know, for, for law and order, is gone and what is left is anarchy. Well, no, I think I think that there were plenty of people who who welcomed the the collapse of Roman power because I think by the by the end it had become incredibly well, they, were, they fancied power themselves surely. That's true for the for the invaders for the, for the you know the, the Franks and the the Visigoths who who take over the commanding heights of the imperial system. But I think for for people lower down the social classes, I think that the collapse of Roman rule was often a liberation because it meant that you weren't being oppressed by tax collectors. And by the end of the uh, the Roman Empire in the West, it's become a hugely oppressive structure because it depended on leeching vast amounts of money for taxes to pay for the military to keep it going. So the whole thing had become a kind of a violently oppressive protection racket. Yeah, but surely there's a counter argument, which is that there's, there's lots of people who are, I mean, there are sources that lament the death of the Roman Empire and that sort of say, Oh, now we have to put up with you know tens of thousands of you know Vandals or Visigoths or whatever roaming across the countryside, you know. Over presume, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're not kind of you know borrowing jugs of milk and and, and paying no, for them afterwards. Absolutely, they, they, you know the, the the empire is kind of held together by sinews, and when those sinews get cut, everything falls to pieces, and and trade basically does start to to to, to collapse. Although it's it's far more protracted than the kind of stereotype of the Roman Empire goes out and everything turns to darkness would would convey, um, but I think that yes, I mean you're pointing at you know what what would people rather have? Would they rather have liberty or would they rather have um, anarchy? <laughs> and that's the way that it, <laughs> that in the Western tradition it's often been framed because I think that um, that that we are you know in the West we're the heirs to two great traditions. Um, we're the heir to, you know, we have the Bible and in the Bible, empires are generally regarded as the baddies. So we've talked about how the, you know, Pharaoh is, a, is the oppressor of the children of Israel. Um, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, um, you know, they, they destroy the kingdom of Israel. They destroy the kingdom of Judah. These are idol well, that's worshippers. Well, that's because they don't have an, em it's they yeah, don't have an the, empire of their own. Yeah, they're small. They're so, the, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. But, but it means that, that those scriptures are a powerful influence on our assumption that there is something morally corrupt with empire. And then in the New Testament, you know, Jesus is tortured to death by the apparatus of a great imperial power. And in the book of Revelation, I mean, it's one of, I think it's the most influential work of anti-imperial propaganda ever written. The Whore of Babylon is an emblem of power. To this day, you know, you have, um, you know, Rastafarians will talk about Babylon, London, New York, the great centre, the great metropoles. Um, 
that idea of the whore of Babylon leeching goods and wealth from the rest of the world is an incredibly powerful image of Roman imperialism and, and, and is one that we still kind of are the heirs of to this day. But we're also the heirs to Rome itself, though, Tom, aren't we? Because, I mean, we talked in the previous episode about America and Rome. I mean, we surround the, the British Empire, the great European empires, they modelled themselves on Rome to some extent. So we sort of have a dual... Yeah, inheritance. Would, but, but, you, would you but, agree with that? But even that classical inheritance is ambivalent because, of course, you're right that the example of Rome is absolutely enormous. I mean, when we think of empire, that's what that's what we think of. And European powers traditionally, when they've aspired to empire, have modelled themselves on Rome. Absolutely. But but there is an ambivalence in that classical tradition because um, if we're the heirs of Greece, the great the great heroic conflict for the Greeks was their battle against the Persian Empire when, when the Persians sought to expand westwards into Greece and the battles yes. of Marathon, the battles of Salamis. This was cast by the Greeks as battles for freedom. And at the someone end of the... should do a book about this. Yeah, song. someone should. And, and, and 479, the battle, great land battle of Plataea, when the armed invasion of Greece is ended, um, the Spartan uh, commander goes to the great tent of the king that's been left for the Persian general who's been killed, left dead on the battlefield of Plataea. And he goes in and he marvels at the wealth of gold and robes and everything. And he looks at this huge feast and he orders the Persian chefs to rustle up an enormous feast. And then he, order, he, he brings out the kind of traditional Spartan meal of disgusting broth. And he invites all the other Greek commanders in and says, look at this, isn't this ridiculous? You know, this, th- these Persians have come all this way to rob us of our poverty. And that's how the Greeks like to see themselves, as noble, as poor, as standing firm against imperialism. And that also is a part of our inheritance. But let me jump in there, Tom. The Greeks had colonies. Yeah. The Greeks established colonies in Sicily, in, I don't know, southern Italy. Um, they, they were colonizers themselves. So the idea of them is these sort of you know, the rebel alliance of, of Star Wars, these sort of um, <laughs> noble, plucky, Spartan freedom fighters. That surely doesn't hold water. The Greeks would have been perfectly happy to be imperialists. They just weren't very good at it. Well, and the Athenians and the Spartans, in the wake of the, uh, the, the defeat of the Persians, both have a go at empire. I mean, the Athenians basically take over the Persian <laughs> Aegean Empire. And right, so, yeah, there's a massive kind of streak of hypocrisy there, um, completely. And there's, a streak, and there's a same strain in Rome as well, because for the Romans, um, they likewise lay a great emphasis on, on libertas, on, on freedom, uh, on the, the way in which... Um, turnip-eating peasantry is kind of the essence of Roman virtue, and that to rule an empire is to be corrupting. So um, by the time that the Romans are kind of invading uh, Scotland, you have senators like Tacitus who are seeing the whole kind of apparatus of empire as inherently corrupting. And so he's putting words into the barbarians who are opposing the Romans and he gives to a Scottish chieftain the famous line that they, you know, they, they create a desert and call it peace. And that also... You should have done that in an accent. You should have done that in a <laughs> I'm not going to risk you have done Scottish listeners uh, turning off. But, but, and, but so that, that's, that also, that Roman suspicion of empire is also a part of the cocktail that, that we in the West inherit. So we absolutely it's, inherit... That's the, little Englanderism. Isn't well, that little yes, Englanderism? Yeah, to a degree. But, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, the, the idea that the empire is morally corrupting is something that we get from the Romans. The idea that um, liberty is something worth fighting against enormous empires is something we get from the Greeks. And the idea that empires are morally corrupt is something that we get from, from the Bible. And, that you know, that is basically why the impulse to decolonize is incredibly Western. And so... Okay, on that note, on that note, I'm going to to stop you talking. Enough of Tom Holland's moral corruption. We are going to take a short break and brew that perfect embodiment of empire a cup of tea, and we shall be back with Mr Corrupt after the break. Goodbye. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Last Thursday, we brought you the fabulously outrageous subject of sex in the 18th and 19th century cities. And this Thursday, we're looking inside the cauldron and we're examining the role of witches and witchcraft in British society and indeed European society. And now we're going to get into some of these questions about empire. But before we do, Tom, you haven't really answered the big question, which is, is empire always bad? 
Uh, no, because empires tend to create the standards by which they're judged. So I've heard you say that before. I always think that's very <laughs> invasive. <laughs> well, the, so the classic example of that is the uh, Arab Empire. Um, right. The, the Arab Empire? Surely not. Well, so, so the Arab Empire. that claim on so the, so the Arab Empire, um, the Umayyads, the Abbasids, and then the, the various inheritor empires that um, carve up the original Arab Empire, um, they justify it in terms of Islam. And the people that they've conquered become Muslim and therefore see their conquest as an expression of God's will. I mean, I, does that not seem a reasonable argument well, I mean, to you? I had this argument with somebody, somebody recently and they said, um, you know, they, empires are always bad, they're always oppressive and all the rest of it. And I said, and of course, when people have this conversation, they're almost always thinking about European colonial empires of the 18th, 19th and early 20th centuries, aren't they? And I said, oh, the Ottoman Empire, a really bad thing. And there was this sort of embarrassed pause, didn't know what to say. And then I said, exactly what you said, the Arab Empire. Are you going to argue that the Arab Empire was evil? And of course, nobody will make that argument. Not because they, I think, because they're afraid, but because it's a self-evidently foolish thing to say, to look at something that lasted centuries, that most of its people took completely for granted, and to just sort of write it off in this simplistic way. I, well, I think it's just bizarre. And, and very similarly, the Romans, the Romeoi of Constantinople, when they're fighting to keep their city and their empire against the Ottomans, you know, they, they, they're they yeah. doing it as Romans. Are they... They see that yeah. likewise. Who as, are the as absolute, there? Yeah. As, <laughs> but, 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 but they, you know, they... These are people who were conquered very brutally by the Romans back in the... Um, the second, first century BC, and by the 15th century, they are identifying the fact that they are Roman with God's purpose. Um, so in that, you know, who are we to say the Byzantine They're Empire right. was, yeah. was, was evil? I mean, also, isn't it just the case that basically, I mean, John Darwin, a historian at Oxford, makes this point in his book After Tamerlane, which is a great history of empires. And he basically says empire is the natural unit. For most of history, empire has been the natural unit of human organisation. The more powerful you are, the richer you are, the more likely you are to have an empire. The Venetians had an empire. You know, Portugal had an empire. Belgium had an empire. Basically, whenever you're at the top of the tree, you have an empire because it's an expression of influence and authority and all of those kinds of things. And, and a world without empires would be a world without human beings. I mean, that would be my view because I don't think you can fragment the world into into sort of happy, harmonious, democratic nation-states. It just doesn't work that way. Well, I'm not sure I agree with that because the uh, the John Darwin book, After Tamerlane, is basically focused on Eurasia. And so it's focused on on areas where huge empires absolutely are, are the norm. Um, so Persian Empire, Ottoman Empire, Chinese Empire, the various empires of the Silk Road that kind of rise and fall. Um, but I do think Western Europe is different. Because I do think that it's, um, you know, we've already talked about this, uh, in the wake of the, the collapse of the empire, in the, the Roman Empire in the West, a unitary power never really succeeds in establishing itself for a lengthy period of time in, in Western Europe. And so for Europeans, the assumption is kind of hardwired that, um, as you say, that there should be a kind of patchwork of, of competing states. Um, and yet, and yet they're trying to get, I mean, the Europeans have... The, the the message you get from Europe now is that's the road to disaster and world war, and you know Giva Hofstadt, the um, the sort of uh, who sees himself clearly as the kind of Count Cavour of, of European unification, the Belgian MEP. For me, the gift that keeps on giving. He says, you know, Europe should be an empire. We live in a world of empires, and the European Union should be an empire, and we should put aside all these petty national differences. And that is the kind of assumption of the. Treaty of Rome and European unification, right? Ever closer union. So let's build an empire. I think the processes within Europe that encourage, uh, you know, states to fissure, uh, attempts to construct European unity to, to fall apart are, are as constant as the impulse to kind of bring them together. Uh, and there's never really been a kind of synergy. I mean, so this is the huge question for us now as Europeans is will the European hold together? Uh, you know, is, is, is it a kind of new order? Has that age of fragmentation gone? But 
the, the paradox is that even as Europeans are trying to do this, across the globe, as reflected in the United Nations, is a European assumption about how people should organise themselves that is absolutely rooted in the European idea of nation states and which was spread around the world by European colonialism. So the reason that the Middle East now is divided up into a patchwork of nations and does, you know, is not an empire, basically for the first time since, uh, since, since the Achaemenid era, the, the first Persian empire, is because of European colonialism. And the, para- yeah, the, you know, the huge paradox of kind of anti-imperialism in the West is that it's incredibly and irreducibly Western. It's, yeah. it's, it's this it, fusion of biblical, classical traditions melded together. And to decolonize something is basically to make it more Western, it seems to me. Yeah, it's, I, think that's, I think that's a very good point. But also, I think it may not be that the future belongs to nation states, because, of course, China is effectively an empire. The United States, I would argue, is an empire. Um, Russia is an empire. Uh, so the idea that we're living in a post-imperial age, I think, is a fantasy. Anyway, we have completely failed to get into the question. Yes, yeah, so, so um, choose a question, Dominic. Uh, well, why don't I just go for the first one, which is from um, Graffitology. So he's talking about the British Empire, which we haven't really talked about at all. And it's not a podcast about the British Empire, but I suppose we can do a question or two on it. Uh, Graffitology says, on the subject of the British Empire, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how the perception of it has changed from a good thing to a bad thing in British culture, whereas many in Brit- previous British Empire countries have fond recollections of those times. Do they? Um, do you want... <laughs> well, I think... I don't know. I mean, I, 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 my take on this is that people in previous um, colonies of the empire uh, don't really think about the British Empire very much at all because they're too busy getting on with their lives. And the people we hear from... Um, are people who are unusually politicised or who are unusually interested in what is now the increasingly distant past. I don't think the British, are, uh, if you look at recent polls, we're neither unusually proud nor unusually self-flagellating. It's the Dutch, isn't empire. it? The Dutch, the Dutch are, are very of, proud. insanely <laughs> proud of their empire. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I mean, I always think, you know, these polls are a bit ridiculous because I just don't think most people give a damn one way or the other. They don't think about it very much. There were brilliant surveys done in the mid-20th century, so around about the high point of our empire, and they would ask people to name colonies or name possessions of the British Empire. The most common one they knew people usually named was Scotland. <laughs> and, and I think something like Lincolnshire was in the top ten. So that tells you how much people, I think, ever really cared about the British Empire or, or knew about it. So, but there was a kind of vague inchoate sense that it was a good thing, wasn't it? Kind of lurking yeah, in the back I think of the mind. I, you see, my, my take on this, right, which we should get into in another podcast, is that people didn't give a damn about the empire. They liked being top nation. They liked status. But whether that status involved a, a particular colony or, a, you know, control of a given sea lane, or, I mean, they didn't know what was going on and they, they couldn't really care less. They just liked the impression of power and prestige. I think that's what has always mattered to to European colonialists and of course money far more than the sort of I don't think people ever obsessed about the nitty-gritty of their empires but I think also running with that right the way through the period of British imperial expansion and rule is the sense that it that British people have that it's wrong so well they were the heyday of always always argument always kind of anxiety about it Uh, and I think that you know, that that is also part of what the British export. So I was reading C.L.R. James's um, book on cricket beyond a boundary. Um, and he's writing as, as a Marxist who's very, very anti-imperial. Um, and yet what, what's manifest is it's an incredibly British book. It's absolutely saturated in English literature and, you know, obsessed with cricket, with, with everything about it. And reading it now, it's um, it's kind of positive about, Britain in a way that very few British people today are. Um, and I think that um, it, it kind of points to the way in which anti-imperialism what, paradoxically was something that was exported by the British as well as, 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 well as imperialism. Uh, and even, even as someone like Frantz Fanon, um, you know, who's in, in a way the kind of the great, um, the great spokesman for anti-colonialism, born in and raised in uh, the, the, the French Caribbean empire. He is saturated in um, philosophical assumptions that derive from... Oh, Ho Chi Minh. 
Yeah, or Ho Chi Minh. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Ho Chi Minh worked as a chef, I believe, under Lescoffier. That's, um, <laughs> yes. subject. That's, that's a subject for another podcast. So let's move on to another question, which is on this sort of ground, which is from Tom Shaw. Tom Shaw says, Our attempts to come to, a, to terms with our imperial legacy, much of it traumatic, undermined by our rose-tinted view of ancient empires. The baffling idea, to Tom Shaw anyway, that India was lucky to be colonised by us, surely stems from a place of misplaced gratitude for Roman rule. And then he says, great pod. Well, I, I th- you know, to f- stick to Britain, I, th- I think that our attitudes to the Roman Empire, again, are incredibly paradoxical because for, for British people in the 19th and 20th century, who are they identifying with? Are they identifying with the Britons or are they identifying with the Romans? So outside um, the Houses of Parliament, next to Westminster Bridge, you have a statue of Boudicca, who, whose name means victory, so Victoria. So she's an emblem of the British Queen, member of, you know, uh, summoning up the idea that, uh, that Britons are, are, are destined to rule and to fight. But of course, Boudicca is, is a, a, a rebel against imperial power. And uh, there is a sense as well that the British identify with the Romans. And that kind of tortured, conflicted sense is, I think, still very much with us. We're kind of conflated Boudicca and Britannia haven't we? So the image yes. of Britannia that used to, used to be on the 50p, the sort of the, the, the Roman or Greek helmet and the shield uh, um, and all that sort of stuff. In the public mind, I think they're kind of the same. They sort of merge into this sort of Elizabeth I type, you know, this sort of feminine personification of, of Britain, which is both fighting foreign imperialists and an imperialist in and of itself. Well, I, but, but just to follow up on that, I think it's a commentary on uh, the reality of Roman imperialism that the first representation of Britannia shows her as a woman being raped by the Emperor Claudius. <laughs> oh, so that doesn't, doesn't tend to feature nice. on the coins. No, I wouldn't. Go on, you choose a question. Uh, well, there's one about Christianity, which I, I suspect you don't want me to... <laughs> we, we, we'll skip <laughs> over that one. <laughs> um, here's one from George Ellingham. Do empires that intend to last aspire to become a single nation federal state, i.e. China and the Soviet Union, or is this a more modern nation? Oh, that's a good question. That is an excellent question. Do they aspire to that? Um, I think probably not at first, though you do get... So, for example, with Russia, you had... You've had moments of kind of Russ- Russification, if that's a word. And the the sort of tendency was to try and Russify provinces, let's say the Baltic states or Ukraine, um, and to see them as kind of Russia's little brothers and to eradicate kind of national differences. Though it's interesting with Russia how, you know, Russia is still quite a sort of fragmented country. It's politically... You know, if you look at the map, the way it's structured, it, it still sort of follows um, old patterns. And you have Tatarstan and so on, Kalmykia and the Caucasus. I mean, the Caucasus is a very good example of how you can't just impose a yeah. kind of imperial stamp and, and, and turn everybody into little Russians. But Caucasus is mountainous. Um, so that's a kind of another fascinating, right. you know, that, that empires tend to reach geographical borders where... yes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And let's say China. I mean, China has limits. You know, China can't go on expanding forever. I think the Chinese recognised they had limits. And with the peoples who were on the the sort of margins of their empire, the Uyghurs are the, are the obvious newsworthy example, um, they aren't, you know, they don't see themselves as Han Chinese. And and hence the the stories that you get in the in the media about camps and about indoctrination and all yeah. the rest of it. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, I think. Well, I think George uh, empires may have that aspiration, but to realise it is a very different matter. Okay, so following that up with a question from Neil Connolly: When do we stop calling an empire an empire? So that's an interesting. Much of Russia is a result of imperial conquest, yet we happily consider its territory to be part of the state. Likewise, the Western USA and Northern Ireland. So actually, not just the Western USA, the whole of the USA. I mean, the whole yeah, of the USA, the, USA the whole is, of America, yeah. is an imperial project, isn't it? It is, right. And I think it's it's very strange. Um, you know, scholars have written books about American empire and American imperialism. And, and Americans themselves resist it because, of course, their, their nation, their, their sort of founding myth is the sort of Star Wars myth of, you know, plucky rebels fighting off the evil galactic empire, which is us. And so they, so they sort of deny their own imperial nature. But, of course, the United States is an empire. It has all the trappings of empire. 
It has subject peoples, which is to say the Native Americans in their reservations. It has colonies. It has Puerto Rico and it had the Philippines. Um, it has imperial and conquests. And it has bases. Me- stuff taken yeah. from Mexico. Stuff taken, exactly. It's got, it's got bases all over the world. It exerts influence in a way that, you know, if you were a Roman strategist in the sort of third century, thinking about your rivalry with the Persians or, or with the sort of... Um, uh, the peoples to your to your north and your and in Africa and so on and the way in which you play those off against each other and your client states and your buffer zones and that's how American policymakers think you know that's what they study at West Point that's what the people who are in the Council of Foreign Relations and all these things in Washington D.C. they look back to Rome and because they know that deep down that they are an empire as those previous states were too. Okay, Dominic, I've got the perfect follow up for you. That one uh, is from Kern O'Neill. Um, might it be said that the empires of today exist digitally rather than nationally? Google, Amazon, Microsoft, um, and of course, Facebook, because as we're recording this, Facebook is in a kind of, you know, gunboat diplomacy style standoff with uh, with the Australian government. Um, what's That's your take a really on that? Question. Because we have had commercial, I mean, the East India Company is yeah. the classic example yeah, and the Dutch. of a private as a, of a company. Yeah, the Dutch East India Company. So of companies that became that became empires. But then they were sort of it's interesting how they were then subsumed within the idea of a kind of traditional I was about to say a national empire, if that's not a contradiction in terms, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um the 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 East India Company was basically taken over by the British state, or at least its possessions were. Um will that happen? I mean that Google Earth. Digitally, I mean, that's very hard to say, isn't it? Empires uh, of the mind, I suppose. I, I remember I went to Silicon Valley and um, went on a tour around the kind of various campuses of the, the big sites. And um, I can't, I think it was Google. They had a huge, great uh, kind of sign with Google on it. And then we went around and looked around the back and it was um, there on, on the back was some, some fallen company. And it had obviously oh, been, really? re- yes, it had obviously been recycled. And, you know, you imagine yeah. Google could afford a fresh, um, could afford a <laughs> fresh sign. But it's, it's, it's obviously, it's yes, kind of, uh... it's, so it must have been deliberate, a kind of trampling on the grave of the, uh, of the fallen wow. empire, which is like, <laughs> kind oh, of magnificent. Or something. <laughs> yes. Um, Okay, here's one from Lucas Roth. Were people living in empires... I was empires, hoping you were going to ask Lucas okay. Roth. Were people, li- yeah, were people in empires, living in empires better off, in inverted commas, than people living outside the empire? That is, you know, that takes us back to quite a lot of what we've been talking about. Well, it depends on your empire, right? I mean, if you're living in the Belgian Congo, I would say it's preferable to be living outside the borders of that particular territory because you don't want to have your hands cut off because you haven't collected enough rubber or whatever. Um... Were you better off to be in the Roman Empire than outside it or the Persian Empire than outside it, let's say? I mean, my answer to that would probably be yes. Um, Because I think empire offered you... You know, if you were... I mean, obviously, if you're unfortunate, you know, things are pretty rough under empires. But if you're fortunate, if you're blessed by talent, for example, um, you have opportunities for advancement, for travel, um, for economic prosperity and so on, that you probably wouldn't get if you were born in the sort of Germanic forests. Now, maybe that's just my right. prejudice talking. Yeah, what yeah. do you think? Well, I think, again, we go that the great empires, the kind of transcontinental empires, China, Rome, so on, reach the natural limits where basically it, it stops being worthwhile the, 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 the expense and effort of conquering. So when the Romans reach the Rhine, basically... You know, Germany is not the worth the effort. Yeah. It's not like, worth the effort yeah. of conquering, um, and then you start to get the situation where actually it's it's people beyond the empire who want a bit of the wealth, and the role that the um, the various peoples who, who who cross into the empire over the course of the the fifth century is much debated. But clearly, I mean, they have a role to play, and. They're coming in because they want a bit of it in exactly the same way that, the, you know, the Mongols famously in, you know, invade and, and, and conquer China, that people outside want what empires have because it's richer. And that sets up a kind of law of empire that you get in Herodotus, that you get in Tacitus, that you get in Ibn Khaldun, um, namely that empire softens people. 
And it's people outside empires who are left, you know, who, who are, are, are tough, who are hardy, who um, have the virtues that the original imperial peoples had, but have now lost because they've become, you know. That's the sort of Spartan self-image, right? Yes. Spartans yes. versus the Persians or yes. something. Yes. So, so um, the, the Greeks, the Romans, the Arabs of the imperial age all have a kind of sense of themselves as a martial people who are better qualified for rule than the, the soft peoples that they conquer. But in due course, the empires that they establish, you know, they become kind of silken and soft in turn and then become prey to the barbarians beyond the border. And this is seen by all these writers writing very different periods as a kind of you know the the rule of empire and i would i would not be surprised i don't know enough about china to know whether the same thing is identified in china i would guess it it, it yeah. probably is um but it's exactly what americans say right now that we've they've become distracted self-indulgent you know they're sunk in a kind of malaise of introspection and quarreling and that they've lost the you know the the Spartan Republican virtues of the founding fathers and and all this sort of stuff, or or of the greatest generation. So that that trope is still there, and in, yeah. in the way that Americans talk about their empire. Okay, I think I think we've I mean we've barely scratched the surface. We could talk about this for hours and hours, but um, it it's a policy <laughs> must be a policy of this podcast not to outstay our welcome. So just one last question for you, Dominic, from um, David Nicholson. Is there historical veracity to the claim that all empires' day in the sun lasts around 200 years? And I ask that not just because the question in itself is interesting, but because of the the idea that there might be kind of almost the equivalent of biological laws that govern empires. Um, Can we, you know, can we say that empires do have a a natural limit? What do you think? Um... I would say no, and I don't think that 200 years works at all, and I don't think there is a limit. So China, we had a whole podcast on China, and China is the standing rebuke to that. Now, I know there is this discussion about, is China, has it always been one thing, or has it been a succession of things on the same space? But I think that it had, the fact that it has inhabited the same space suggests a continuity, and suggests that you can keep it up. I mean, if you take some of the empires that people often forget about, um, we mentioned the Ottoman Empire, or its predecessor, the Eastern Roman Empire, which we now call the Byzantine Empire. We tell the story of Rome and we say, well, then Rome fell in 476. And then basically there was a successor state in the east, but no one cares about that. And it kind of went away. And But that lasted a thousand years. And it was a remarkably resilient and successful state attacked by lots of different predators and would-be conquerors. And it lasted a very long time. The Ottoman Empire lasted longer than you know, the British Empire, the French Empire, or, or whatever. So I think empires can last for centuries. And I don't think there is actually a... You know, the example of China, or indeed Russia, suggests that there isn't necessarily always this kind of sense of entropy. You know, you don't have to fall apart. There is no biological... There's a point at which you can't expand. I think that's certainly true. Although maybe that law about expansion only applied in a pre-digital age because of transport and communications and so on. Maybe, you know, the chance of a, of a really big empire um, is there in the 21st or 22nd century. What do you think? I don't, I don't know what the future holds. Um, I, Profound I, I, I know, I know. <laughs> and I, I say that because I, I, you're right, that I don't know whether um, the opportunities presented by technology will facilitate the emergence of of new ways of structuring societies and and different hierarchies and things like that. I mean we haven't really talked about the role that technology plays in uh, no. in the emergence of empires and that that may be you know something for a, for a future podcast. I so, mean, here's, so here's I, good... I I don't know. I mean I and looking at China and the the incredible skill with which it's utilizing technology to you know, entrench its 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 rule over the kind of peripheral regions. Um, I I don't see the Uyghurs breaking free of Chinese imperial rule any time soon. Uh, so I, I I wouldn't be able to answer that really. Here's a here's a forward looking thought though. We talked about Europe earlier and about the failure of of a single state to dominate the European sort of peninsula um, after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. But surely the chance now, you know in the next hundred years or so. I mean, the, the dream of, of, of European enthusiasts is that there will be a single state. The European Union will become this empire in all but name. Um, 
crossing national boundaries in a way that simply would not have been conceivable or possible in the 17th or 18th or 19th centuries. So the, the idea, to me, the idea that the age of empires is behind us or that empires indeed have this sort of inbuilt limit or there are places that are naturally resistant to empires, I, I don't really buy any of that. What's well, the cheery note on which to... Uh... <laughs> on which, well, it depends on which, if you like empires. On which to end, and um, I think also, you know, what we've realised from from this discussion is that there's fruit for large numbers of subsequent podcasts. We, we've done if, about we've done about four percent of the questions, which is yes, we have. So our own standards. Many many apologies there, um, but I think this is a subject definitely t- to come back to, perhaps with a slightly narrower focus. All right, so. I have a very nicely written um, conclusion here by the producer, which I want to read because it conjures up to me a very nice image. Uh, The Empire has fallen. Tom Holland has been chased out by angry locals and the podcast has been returned to its rightful ruler, me. We're back on Thursday with historian and TV presenter Susie Lipscomb as we are delving into the dark world of witches and witchcraft. Until then, thanks for listening. See you next time. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.